Good morning. Uh, you've probably heard the name Lin-Manuel Miranda, maybe. He's a songwriter and an actor. More than anything, though, he's a guy who does not think the same way as you and I, one of these creative, artistic types. So, for example, he read a biography of Alexander Hamilton, and he had the same thought I'm sure many of us have had. He thought, this guy Hamilton is the ultimate hip-hop artist. Like I said, he doesn't think the same way as you and I. Uh, But he had this idea. He realized Hamilton was this guy who was born out of wedlock. He grew up without a father in the Caribbean, and yet he found success in America primarily through his words. He was the ultimate hip-hop artist. And so Lin-Manuel Miranda turned the story of Alexander Hamilton in this award-winning Broadway musical, except it wasn't show tunes. It was rap, hip-hop. Like I said, he doesn't think the same way that you and I. Well, this hip-hop musical is very successful, went on uh, to win a lot of different awards. Uh, and uh, So a uh, big success, and Lin-Manuel Miranda was nominated for some of the awards he won. And, and like I said, though, he doesn't think the same way as you and I. And so he wrote an acceptance speech, except it wasn't a speech. It was a sonnet, like Shakespearean poem sonnet, right? He thanked his wife in a sonnet. So, men, Valentine's Day is not that far away. The bar has just been raised for you right there. But uh, in this acceptance speech, this acceptance sonnet, uh, it just so happened that the Tony Awards were immediately after the, uh, the tragic nightclub shooting in Orlando at the Pulse nightclub. And uh, I'm sure you remember that act of violence. And, and he said something. He captured that moment for a lot of people. And he, he ended his sonnet with these lines. And love is love, 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 cannot be killed or swept aside. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, he doesn't think the same way as you and I, except he does. He knows something that we know. He, He knows that love is important, and it's valuable, and it's worth protecting, Now, what he thinks about love, what he calls love, might be different from what you call love, but but he recognizes that love is something worth protecting. And it's pretty fascinating to me. I mean, I don't know anything about where Lin-Manuel Miranda stands in terms of a relationship with Jesus or what he thinks about Christianity, but, uh, but most people, Christian or not, most people would say that at the heart of Christianity is Jesus' own teachings and actions, right? And at the heart of Jesus' own teachings and actions is love. So, at least on paper, in theory, most people would say that at the heart of Christianity is love, and yet yet there's a lot of confusion about Christianity in the world. Uh, More to the point, there's a lot of confusion about love in the world, and that means a lot of people are confused about us. This group of people, this faith family that really have united ourselves around love that's reflected in Jesus' teachings and in his actions. And this morning, as we continue our series, This Is Us, uh, we've been looking at the book of First John, using it as a, as a way to talk about us and to center ourselves around what's really most important. And so if you were here at the beginning of the series, we talked about the beginning of this book, First John. And John starts off talking about a we, 
he himself and the other church leaders, and he's talking to you, the church family. And he doesn't draw a distinction between them. In fact, he does just the opposite. He talks about how they're united. He talks about how when you put a we and a you together, you get an us and a group that's just united as one unit, as one body. And the thing that unites them, as we said the other week, is fellowship. Uh, we said it's, a, it's an intimate fellowship built on partnering together to advance the gospel. It's, it's fellowship with God, but it's also fellowship with each other. Last week, if you were here, we talked about the test of us, how we know that that fellowship's really working. And we said it's not necessarily what happens in here that's the real test. It's what happens out there when we're out there engaging in the community and things like that and uh, how we live out that fellowship. We said it's our external obedience that's the measure of our internal fellowship. And this morning, as we continue the study in First John, we're going to be looking at chapter 3. You can look at that if you want. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to discover something about love. It's, it's new and it's old. It's both at the center of us and it lives on the fringes and it's something that everybody in the world talks about and yet we have cornered the market on it. So let's get started. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 11. 1 John 3, 11. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Well, amen. Sermon over, let's pray. It's simple, right? I mean, what else do you need to say? But I guess it's not as easy as it sounds because somehow we need to be reminded of it over and over and over again, don't we? And John, he's not the only one to say this, not the only one to remind us of this. In fact, throughout the book of 1 John, particularly here in chapter 3, uh, he's really just echoing things that uh, Jesus taught himself and the other disciples. If you look at the Gospel of John, you can see all kinds of similarities to what uh, Jesus says there and what John says here. In fact, in this passage we just read, verse 11, is very, very similar to what Jesus told the disciples at the Last Supper. In the Gospel of John 13, Jesus, he's dining with his disciples, he's sharing some things with them, and, and he says this, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And I love one quote I read about that verse this week, it said, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and they put it into practice. That hits home a little bit, doesn't it? And it's really interesting because John calls it this message we've heard from the beginning, and yet Jesus says this command is new. But, I mean, it really is so simple, and at the risk of disagreeing with Jesus, it's not really new, right? Uh, and yet uh, Jesus makes a really big point of the newness of it. In fact, in the original Greek, the word new is, is really emphasized. Uh, you know, in English, the order you put words in is kind of important to make the sentence mean what you want it to mean. But in Greek, word order is a lot more fluid. And if you want to emphasize something, you just kind of move it to the beginning. And that's really what Jesus does here. He basically says, new, a command I give you. So what makes this command new well, it's not new because nothing like it's ever been said before. It's, that's why John says it's the message we've heard from the beginning. And it's, it's not new because it's a previously unknown idea. It's new because it comes with a new standard. How we are to measure the love that we have for one another. We measure it by a new standard. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, As I have loved you, so you love one another. So Jesus becomes for us the standard by which we measure 
the love that we have for one another. So contrary to Lin-Manuel Miranda's very creative sonnet, love is not love, is not love, unless it measures up to the standard of Jesus' love for the world. So we have this command from Jesus and the command from John here in 1 John 3. It's a command we've had from the beginning. And so it kind of begs the question, why would John tell us this command that's so simple a toddler can memorize it? I mean, if everybody in the world thinks they know what love is, then why would he emphasize it here for us? And the answer, I think, is just because we don't do it. Uh, We need to be reminded because it doesn't come naturally to us. When things go smoothly, sure, we love one another. Uh, Those times, it really doesn't require much of us. Uh, Nobody's challenging us, and so it's easy to love one another, no big deal. But times when things are not going smoothly, at times when we face uncertainty or stress, times when there's change and chaos coming at us, then we tend to default to a different mode. We tend to, to circle the wagons. We tend to overanalyze what people say. We tend to be cynical. We tend to look out for our own interests first. And uh, we tend to default to self-preservation. And so we need this reminder, this old but new command that comes from Jesus' own teaching and his own example. So this morning, we're talking about the love of us. How do we live in this world as an us In order to answer that question, we're going to look at what love is, but first looking at what love is not. And then we're going to come to see what love does, putting some real skin on how this kind of love shows up. And so let's start where John starts with what love is. We have this command, this message you've heard from the beginning, we should love one another. And as John tells us what this love is, he starts off with a negative example. Look at the very next verse, this example of what love is not, verse 12 Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So John goes all the way back to this Old Testament story of Cain and Abel to show us what love is not. And just in case you're not familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, these are the sons of Adam and Eve way back in Genesis. And both Cain and Abel brought sacrifices to God to show their, their worship of the Lord. And as the, both these brothers offered their sacrifices, God was, was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He was not pleased with Cain's. And it's not totally clear exactly why God preferred the one over the other. There's a lot of possible reasons. But I think the problem was not so much with the sacrifice itself. I think the problem was with the attitude. Uh, if you look at the, the passage there, you could see a big difference in the attitude of these two men and... Uh, And that, I think, lets us know what the real problem is. Cain does not have the right attitude as he's coming to serve God. And as a result, he grows angry, he's jealous, he's angry with God, he's angry with Abel, and the results are disastrous. It's a a dramatic story, a, a dramatic representation of really what each of us is capable of. See, just like, you know, when things are going smoothly, it's easy to love one another. But when things take a turn, as what seems to have happened to Cain, then it's not so easy. Things did not go the way that Cain thought they should or thought they would. He got his feelings hurt. Maybe he's embarrassed and things took a turn. Well, in the same way, it's really easy for us to shift our default mode into self-preservation, often at the cost of other people. That's the path that Cain takes. He gets angry. He takes it out on Abel. He kills Abel and then he lies to God to try to protect himself. It's, it's the total opposite of love, demonstrated in this very dramatic way. And now, 
Hopefully for you and I, the results have not been so disastrous, but the principle is still the same. Cain drew into himself, uh, protecting himself, looking out for himself, and that's ultimately what led to this horrible act of murder. So John's using this, this negative example to help teach us what love is not. It's not self-serving. It's not angry. It doesn't blame others for something that's really our own heart problem. Cain's problem is that he offers this, this half-hearted sacrifice to God. Uh, you've heard the expression, complacency kills. Well, in this case, it's literally true. Uh, his complacent attitude towards God was demonstrated in this less-than-acceptable sacrifice, and that complacency caused him to get all angry and jealous and turn in, and he took it out on Abel, innocent Abel. His own selfish complacency led him to kill his innocent brother. Well, in the same way, our own attitudes can poison us. When we're faced with uncertainty, faced with negative circumstances, our default mode is not to love. Our default is to act like Cain, to to shift our focus, to blame other people, to lash out at them. And so John, in giving this command to love one another, warns us very strongly, do not be like Cain. That attitude is what love is not. It's the opposite of love. And so we've really got to guard our hearts. We need to be reminded of this simple enough for a toddler to memorize it command, to love one another. Someone famously asked uh, G.K. Chesterton, a writer, armchair theologian, said, what's the biggest problem in the church today? And he said, I am. Well, if we give in to complacency, if we give in to self-preservation, then we could all answer that question the same way, couldn't we? We can either love one another, or we can be part of the problem. And you know, the other reality is this, you may not know this, but we live in kind of a small town, a tight-knit community, right? Word gets around, and as we go through this time of pastoral transition, folks are watching us. They already are watching us, watching to see how we respond. Uh, What is our message going to be? Is it going to be one of love? Or is it going to be one of circling the wagons, self-preservation, or complacency? Just this week, I heard about uh, two different church scandals, not here, out in the national news, but that's two more cases where the world is watching the church go through difficulty. How are they going to respond? I mean, thank God we don't have the problem that these people have, but, but it doesn't change the fact that the, the valley is watching us go through a time of transition. So let's show them what love really looks like. So John gives us this negative example, what love is not, and the passage goes on to tell us what love is. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, we said before, Jesus is the standard of our love, and here John tells us that we measure that love by the standard of what Jesus has done, specifically because he laid down his life for us. He willingly chose to die for our sake. The Bible tells us that our sin, all the the bad choices we make, and just the, the nature of us, that sin is contrary to God's character, it's contrary to God's will, and the result of that sin is death. We deserve death. Death is the, the right and the just punishment for sin. But in a great act of love, Jesus died in our place. His death is substitutionary, meaning that he took the punishment and we get the benefit. That's an act of selfless love. 
And Jesus is very clear that he was making a choice in doing that. Uh, He says, uh, even though he was arrested and executed, he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down from my own accord. To love is self-sacrifice. That's the new standard of love that Jesus demonstrates. And in this passage, that's how we know what love is, what love should look like. Just as Jesus taught his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John's really just echoing that teaching. And yet I want us to take special note of something here. Jesus sets the standard. He lays down his life for us. He died for us once. But our role is to take that standard and expand on it. We demonstrate love by laying down our lives over and over and over again. Love is love is love is love, if you will. Demonstrated over and over and over again by us. We show the world the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done by following in his footsteps, by laying down our lives for each other. Unlike Cain, bent on self-preservation, pride, complacency, we've got to be just the opposite. Love for us is willing to sacrifice ourselves as many times as it takes over and over again. One person says it this way, love means readiness to do anything for other people. Anything. Love means saying no to our own lives so that other people can find life. And that's why this command is so simple a toddler can memorize it, but embarrassingly hard for us to put into practice. But as the world is watching during this time of transition, we want to make sure they see love. Each of us laying down our lives for each other, mutual love demonstrated over and over and over again. That's what love is, following Jesus' example, laying down our lives for each other. Earlier this morning, we sang the song, Build My Life, song about building our lives around Jesus. I'm not going to sing it for you. You're welcome. But I want to just remind us of some of the lyrics. It says, holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Show me who you are. Fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. And and notice there's a, a progression here. It starts with God. There's no one like him. And as our hearts, as our eyes are open to that truth, we're filled with him. But then look at the last line. The result is exactly what we're talking about. Lead me in your love to those around me. Love for others should be the natural outflow of our relationship with God. Love that flows from the love that God has demonstrated in Christ for us. That's what love is, laying down our lives over and over and over. And John goes on to give some practical examples of this. He tells us what love is not, looking at the example of Cain. He's told us what love is, looking at the example of Jesus. And now he tells us what love does. Practical ways this love plays out. Look at the next verse, verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So this first practical example of what love does hits us right in the pocketbook. I mean, John could choose a lot of possible examples, but he goes straight for the top, doesn't he, for for money. Perhaps that's the easiest way to see if we're really loving others by following Jesus' example. Uh, One of our deacons is always fond of saying, there's an invisible thread that runs from our hearts right to our wallets. You know, they're connected. 
Uh, I think Jesus said something similar about our treasure in our heart, right? And John reinforces that here. The, the easiest way and the hardest way to lay down our lives for each other is by meeting each other's needs financially. How we use our resources tells a lot about our heart condition. And that's true for us as individuals, but it's also true for us as an us, as a church. So let's make sure that, that we're living like pipes and not like buckets, right? We don't want to settle in and, and hold tight and wait to see what comes next or who comes next. We've got work to do during this time of pastoral transition, and that's why we keep hitting on this theme of getting involved, getting involved. That means not only serving in different ways, but getting involved also means getting and staying financially involved. You and I, being a part of this faith family, means we all have a role to play, and, and that's using all our resources, our money, and our time, and our talent. So one very practical thing that love does is love meets financial needs. And I want to remind us of something we talked about this past fall in the series More Blessed when we talked about the idea of pipes and not buckets, right? At that time, Pastor Brad challenged us to, uh, to a couple of special giving projects. And one of those was what we call the Coconut Oil Project. Some of our missionaries, John and Aaron, have a chance to really uh, transform their community by uh, helping them harvest and utilize the natural resource that they have, coconuts. Uh, not just using them for food, but for all kinds of different things. And uh, I'm happy to report that you guys really answered that call. The Coconut Oil Project has some good funding behind it. I'm sure we're going to be hear more about that as, as it begins to take shape. But the, the second thing, the second one of these projects that we talked about uh, challenging ourselves with was helping fund our, our Trinity Youth Mission Trip. You've heard uh, even this morning about the student ministry team headed to the Navajo Nation in Arizona, one of the poorest people groups in the country, and our youth is going to be doing a, a student-led mission trip there. And uh, part of what they're going to do is some evangelism, like primarily through like sports camp kind of evangelism, and uh, they're going to do some community improvement and using that time to really build relationships, try to advance the gospel. And, and that project really has three streams of funding. One is just students' own contributions. The other one being fundraisers. You know, they've got coffee, donuts. You heard about the shoe drive. Uh, but the third stream is us, each of us prayerfully giving towards that. So that's a project you can contribute towards, one way that you can use your material possessions to help meet needs, just like John talks about here. But I want us to notice something that's maybe not quite so obvious in this passage. John encourages us to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters, but uh, that means we have to know what the needs of our brothers and sisters are before we can meet them, right? And that's why we keep talking about the value of getting connected. Because you can't meet anybody's needs if you don't know what those needs are. So getting involved, getting connected, those are key pieces to living out this kind of love. We have to, to know each other. We have to be willing to be known by other people. We have to live in that intimate fellowship we've talked about throughout this series. And, and I talked earlier in the, uh, the series about the value of membership. It's still valuable. Uh, it's a great way to, to get connected, to be known, to fully engage as a part of this fellowship. So I'd encourage you to pray for, uh, prayerfully consider the idea of membership. And as we said before, you know, attendance without participation that's not really what anybody's after. Unless you're new, uh, there's really not just a place for just showing up and uh, uh, only on Sundays and then going home. Uh, you need to get connected. You need to get involved. And maybe, you know, maybe you only come on Sunday because your schedule prohibits other engagement. All right. All right. But, but right here in this passage is one way you can get involved financially 
right? So even if that's the only involvement that you have the ability to, to be uh, investing in this faith family, it's a valuable investment, each of us actively engaged. And in fact, that's what John says in the very next verse. Look at verse 18. He says, Dear children, let us love, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So the real heart of what love does is action. Love does. It actually does. It's not just lip service, not just talking about it, but actually doing something. And the evidence of love is not just verbal profession, but it's vital performance. And I want us to notice what John says here, two different things. He says actions, actually doing something, and he mentions truth. And actions without truth, that's, that's not really what we're after. What do we mean by that? Our actions, they have to be sourced in the truth, and they have to be reflective of that truth. In other words, if our actions are really going to be an expression of love, the kind of love that Jesus models, uh, they need to be not just an expression of loving feelings, the kind of thing that Lynn manuel Miranda rhymes about, but they've got to be a reflection of truth, the truth about Jesus. You know, our culture is all screwed up about what love is, what it looks like, how it feels, how it should act. The, the view of love is very self-serving. But as we've already said, Jesus is the true standard of love, and it's Christ-like sacrificial love that Jesus models and that he calls us to. So that means we've got to be sourced in the truth, immersed in the truth of God's Word. You know, one of the great legacies of Trinity is that we've always built ourselves around the truth of God's Word. That's not going to change anytime soon. But we've got to make sure that our lives model that too. That our, our, our love for each other has to be sourced in that truth about God as he's revealed himself to us. So our love does. It, it does things with actions and in truth, sourced in truth and reflecting that truth. And we want the, the choices that we make to be reflective of God's truth. As we've said, if other people are watching, we want them to see us loving each other in a way that points people towards the truth about Jesus. That means love that's countercultural. It's counterintuitive. Uh, Augustine, the, the early church father, wrote a famous book called The City of God. I haven't read it, but I hear it's really good. Tough crowd, yeah. In The City of God, Augustine sets out, he talks about, uh, he starts off talking about why the Roman Empire collapsed. That's not that interesting. But, uh, but in this book, he talks about two cities, in other words, two ways to live in the world. And one city is just centered around self-serving. Uh, and the other city, he calls the City of God, is centered around self-giving, two ways that you can live in the world. And the world looks out for number one, uh, looks out for its own self-interest. But God's people... Living in truth, we lay down our lives for each other. Self-sacrifice modeled after what Jesus has done. And so, so our financial giving, it might be radical instead of safe. Our time spent loving each other might be sacrificial instead of carefully measured and carefully calendared. Our priorities might seem all out of whack to somebody over here, but reflecting the truth of God over here. Those are the kind of ways that our actions point to the truth. I uh, was thinking a lot about this kind of countercultural activity this past week. Of course, we commemorated Martin Luther King Day, celebrating the, the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights activist. And one of the keys to his success was this counterintuitive idea, the idea of nonviolent protest, right? 
He knew if a bunch of angry black men took to the streets, threatening people and yelling and this kind of thing, then uh, the real message of injustice would be totally lost. So nonviolent protest was a counterintuitive way to combat violence and oppression. Instead of trying to fight, trying to be stronger than the oppressors, Dr. King, he said, the strong man is the man who will not hit back, who can stand up for his rights and yet not hit back. And this nonviolence tactic had some success, but when the civil rights movement went into Birmingham, Alabama, the, uh, the, the commitment to nonviolence was really put to the test. People who were peacefully marching were attacked by police dogs or, or attacked by fire hoses. Children as young as 10 were being arrested and taken to jail. And as a, a shocked nation watched these images unfolding on the evening news, people began to awaken to the reality of that injustice that African Americans faced all over the South. People were, were shaken out of their own complacency. They began to take action of their own, which was exactly the point. Uh, Dr. King says it this way, nonviolence seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. Well, in the same manner, you and I are called to a simple command, so simple a toddler can memorize it, love one another. But just like nonviolent protests, it's designed to show the world the truth. Our love for each other, modeled on what Christ has done, love that follows his example, it shows the watching world what us is really all about. And it shows the watching world not only what us is all about, but it shows them what they're all about. The wrong view of love, the wrong view of life, and it forces everybody to come to terms with the truth. So loving each other, that's the love of us. That's how we're supposed to live. Not like Cain, not like our culture bent on self-pleasing and self-preservation, but like Christ, laying down our lives for each other over and over and over again so that the world can see, so that the world cannot ignore, and so that the world can join us. Let me pray. God, we are uh, humbled by the example that you give us in your son Jesus, knowing that we're not worth the love that you give us, and yet uh, you tell us that we are. And we want to be people who reflect that same truth to the world. We want to love each other well so that the watching world can see and can respond to you, God. We give you all the praise and we give you all the glory. Pray that you would strengthen us and give us the ability to love well, not bent on our own self-preservation, but looking to you as our example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.